We will be looking at Psalm 60 this morning. A Psalm of David. And once again, as with previous Psalms that we've looked at recently, there is a comment in the intro of this Psalm of David uh, to point us toward the events that surround it. The setting is a battle or a series of battles that took place after David became king over Israel. The accounts of these battles are found in 2 Samuel 8 and in 1 Chronicles 18. So if you were to read through these two chapters, which correspond to one another, the 2 Samuel and the 1 Chronicles, you would notice that they outline a succession of victories. However, Psalm 60, as we'll see, opens up with the cry, Oh God, you have rejected us. So how do we reconcile the defeat described in the psalm with the victories described in the chapters that offer the background to the psalm? Well, the simplest solution is that though Israel won these engagements, she suffered uh, setbacks along the way. So it was not always clear in the midst of the battle that victory would be the outcome. God did bless David as king, gave him success over his enemies, which were the surrounding nations of Israel. But these victories also caused dangerous alliances to form against the nation of Israel. So we find in 2 Samuel 8 that David and his troops are fighting off this alliance between the Arameans and King Hadadezer to the north and to the northeast. And what seems to have occurred is that while the army of Israel is occupied with fighting invaders from the north, Edom attacks from the south. With their rear flank wide open and and most of the soldiers concentrated northward, the prayers of Psalm 60 erupt, if you're still with me. So the context of this psalm is a national cry to God in the midst of seeming defeat. And because, of course, at this point, David, at this point in Psalm 60, does not know the outcome. Now, we read the victory to come in 1 Chronicles 18, particularly verses 12 through 13, which say, Moreover, Abishai, which is one of David's commanders, Abishai, the son of Zariah, defeated 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom, And all the Edomites became servants to David wherever he went. And so with that in mind, and hopefully that is helpful, allow me to read the words of Psalm 60. Psalm 60, starting in verse 1. O God, you have rejected us. You have broken us. You have been angry. O restore us. You've made the land quake. You have split it open. Heal its breaches, for it totters. You've made your people experience hardship, You have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exalt. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Shekot. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is also the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? 
And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? O give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. This is God's word. I want to start off with looking at verse 6 in Psalm 60 because it contains the promise. The promise. The pleas of anguish that you heard in the first three verses, they arise from hope deferred. Lord, we expected your help, yet you rejected us. We expected your favor, yet you seem angry with us. We anticipated stable ground upon which to fight, but you sent an earthquake. We expected victory upon victory, but instead, life is hard. At the moment, things are not going as we hoped. The picture of a drunk man is brought forth in verse 3. The effects of inebriation are felt throughout the whole body. When a person is drunk, they don't just feel it in their feet or just in their head or just in their arms. It's everywhere. God's abandonment is felt throughout the nation. It's one thing to be disappointed. We've all been there. Maybe you're there this morning. Something did not work out like you had expected, like you had hoped. And it was not just a minor annoyance, you know, the stuff of every day that pops up, but a tragic, unexpected, or confusing occurrence that took your breath away, or that crushed your dream, or that left you staggering. This is the, the force of the anguish that's expressed in these first three verses. And what makes the disappointment all the more painful is not that the, the battle seems as if Israel will lose. That would be bad enough. It's not merely the thought of being overrun by their enemies from the south, as undesirable as that would be. What makes the turn of events so very difficult is because it appears as if God is not being true to his word. It looks like the promise of God has failed. And let me show you how this is the case. Look at verse 6. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exalt. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkot. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's very important. It refers to a promise that God gave to his people. God has spoken. God said he would do something, yet at the moment, he is not doing it. So the psalm begins with a promise that is not being fulfilled in the immediate experience of the people. Can you relate? Of course you can. God speaks through his word to you. The Holy Spirit takes a word of promise and applies it to your heart. And you begin to look eagerly toward how God will fulfill his promise in your life. And then something happens that contradicts everything that God showed you to expect. Maybe you didn't get the job that you felt sure was in line with the, with the career path that God had led you into. Perhaps you suffer a miscarriage after years of you and your husband praying, trusting, and claiming what you thought was a promise that the Lord would give you a child. This maybe doesn't directly apply to anybody here. Maybe it does. You haven't found a spouse yet. And another relationship that you felt sure was from the Lord ended badly. Give me some examples here, some things to drive 
this home, what's taking place in Psalm 60, uh, you lost a spouse when you were sure that the two of you would grow old together. You claim the promise of God's word that the power over sin was broken at the cross, yet you cannot seem to avoid going back to that one sin over and over again. In other words, we all know what it is to place our hopes in a promise from God and then circumstances deny its fulfillment. Well and good. But maybe you're asking, how is that the case in Psalm 60? Let's look again at verse 6. You will notice that God promised to portion out land, specifically Shechem and Sukkot. Now, there is not an actual promise in the Old Testament worded exactly that way. This is not a direct quote from another passage of Scripture. This statement of verse 6 is a paraphrase of promises that all have to do with the promised land. It's a, it's a summation of, of related promises that would have been understood by a Hebrew reader. And let me show you how this is the case. Way back in Genesis, first book of the Bible, way back in Genesis chapter 12, we find God calling Abraham out of the land of Mesopotamia. God promises to make Abraham into a great nation, that would be Israel, and to give him and his descendants the land of Canaan. Now once Abraham finally arrives to this land, not yet Abraham, still Abram as a matter of fact, this land is currently filled with all sorts of people that look with suspicion and antagonism upon this new stranger that has showed up. And we read in Genesis 12, verses 6-7, through Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the Oak of Moray. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is the first mention of Shechem in the Bible. That's important. Anytime you're studying a word in the Bible or a place or a person, find where it's mentioned first. It'll give you a lot of insight. So at this ancient point in time, Shechem was simply a spot on the map with apparently this memorable oak tree and some Canaanite settlement nearby. Shechem was located near the middle of what would become Israel, west of the Jordan River. And it was where God reiterated his promise to Abraham about the land. And where Abraham worshipped God in acknowledgement of that promise. So again, at this point, Abraham is a stranger in a strange, hostile land. We then find Shechem mentioned again several chapters later in the account Genesis of Abraham's grandson, that would be Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, when Jacob returns to Canaan after dwelling many years with his father-in-law Laban, if you're familiar with the story, he comes back to the promised land and he camps in Shechem. But on his way there, before Jacob crosses the Jordan River with his large family, he camps in a place called Sukkot. So he decided to dwell in Sukkot initially to avoid living close to and thereby crowding out his brother Esau because they both possessed a lot of livestock. Sukkot, not on this map, is to the west of the Jordan River in the territory of what would become Gad. And it would later, Sukkot would later come to be used as a term to indicate the outer reaches of the promised land. And that's how Sukkot is used here in verse 6, if you're still with me. It refers to the land promised by God to Israel through Abraham east 
of the Jordan River. In the same way, Shechem had come to represent the land promised to Israel west of the Jordan River. When Jacob returned to the land promised to him because it was first promised to his grandfather Abraham, it is Sukkot and it is Shechem that symbolize Jacob's arrival. Now, in fact, the only piece of land that Abraham ever actually owned in Canaan was the plot with the cave where he buried his wife, Sarah. And where was that? That was in Shechem. It was, it was Abraham's down payment of faith, claiming all of the land that God had promised to his descendants with that one little piece that he actually owned. Therefore, what am I getting at? Shechem and Sukkot together refer to all the territory that was promised to Israel. And this was the land that David, some 600 years later, was in the process of defending and extending. And I can now bring this back to Psalm 60. Notice that the promise of God to give the Hebrew people the land of Canaan is summed up with the words, I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkot. That's the ancient promise, summed up. Yet, the position that the army of Israel finds itself under in Psalm 60 is an attack from Edom to the south while attempting to defend itself from a significant force coming from the north. That is to say, the borders are threatened. The land is threatened. The significance of the land was that God gave it to his people Israel against all odds. It was a physical representation of the promises of God. That's why it's called what? The promised land. But in the midst of multiple battles, defending themselves against their enemies, it suddenly appears, it suddenly seems as if the promise of God will fail. Now the book of Joshua, if you keep flipping past Genesis, come to the book of Joshua, is focused on the conquest of the land. God had already given Canaan to his people, but they still had to go in and they still had to claim it. And they, and they claimed it through, war, through warfare, through going to battle against the pagan inhabitants that lived there. So as long as the Israelites trusted God, they were victorious. When their faith in God's promises faltered, so did they. And so we find in the book of Joshua, Joshua leading the armies of, of Israel to secure a significant amount of the land promised to Abraham. Yet there still remained some land unconquered, even at Joshua's death. And so in Joshua 23, 43, just before Joshua dies, we read, The Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. So if the Lord said that he gave them all the land, what about the remaining land yet to be conquered, still remaining, at Joshua's death? Well, here's the answer. Though the Israelites did not yet possess all of it, they were authorized by God to take possession of it. All that still remained. It was there for them as soon as they called upon the Lord and stepped out in faith. What they did not yet literally possess, they could possess. Why? Because the Lord gave Israel what? All the land. And he gave it to him in the form of an ongoing promise. Now in David's time, Psalm 60, it looks as if the Israelites are about to lose land. And from this place of fear and concern, they cry out. 
God made a promise, but now God is not keeping his promise, or at least that is how it appears. And there it is again, frustrated hopes, disappointment, all the more painful because it seems as if God has abandoned you. You have rejected us. Why did God put them in this position? Why does he put you and me in this position? Well, let's look at some of the wording in the first three verses to see what we can discover. We saw the promise in verse 6, and now verses 1 through 3, the discipline. David expresses the laments of the whole nation. He's the spokesman. He's the king. So the words of verses 1 through 3 are expressions of disappointment on a national level. And we must ask the question, what is the cause of God's rejection? Why is God being perceived as angry with his people? The answer lies in one of two directions. One of two directions. Either the people have sinned and therefore lost the favor of God, or they're being disciplined. Two options here. We feel like God's rejected us, so either we've sinned or we're being disciplined. What's the difference? It's a good question. The first Punishment, punishment for sin, is retributive. That is, it is judgment as a consequence of one's actions. Punishment is designed when God is the source to rehabilitate. Let me break this down. A lot of, a lot of Bible in this message this morning. The prophet Jeremiah, he will come along many generations after David, and he will repeatedly warn the kingdom of Judah that she will go into exile in Babylon if the people do not cease their idol worship. Jeremiah was the last of multiple generations of prophets who sounded the same alarm, calling Judah to repent. And when Judah refused to heed the warnings of Jeremiah, guess what happened? The Babylonians, they came, they destroyed Jerusalem, they burned the temple to the ground, and they carried off most of the population to Babylon. And there they stayed for 70 years. That was a consequence of their sins. It was punishment. But the goal of punishment was not to simply inflict suffering. The goal was to rehabilitate. God's intention was to purge Judah of her idolatry and to return her to the promised land. And this he did. And you find that story of the return in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. After Judah returned... Guess what? The Jews never again worshipped idols. Now, they had other sins they were guilty of. We, we see some of those sins in the Pharisees during Jesus' time. But they were never again guilty of idol worship. The rehabilitation worked. You do the same thing with your children, or you did. When a child disobeys in a healthy society, I realize that we're kind of moving away from a healthy society, but when a child disobeys in a healthy society, the parents punish them. Now, this might be a spanking, or it might be a grounding, depending on the age of the child, but the idea is the same. Inflict suffering in order to rehabilitate. The child will hopefully not disobey again because they do not desire to undergo the punishment again, right? Are you with me? And if the child obeys in the future, the punishment was effective. It served its purpose. However... We do not read either in Psalm 60 or in its corresponding passages that Israel, as led by David, sinned. We don't, we don't find that. 
They were enjoying victory after victory, a sign of God's favor, when suddenly there's this interruption. And the interruption in God's blessing is commented on in the first three verses. This does not appear to be punishment. So what's the other option? It appears to be discipline. If punishment is for rehabilitation, the discipline is for growth and holiness. Where do I get that? Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11. They read, God disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So here's the difference. Punishment is a consequence of sin. Discipline is training that teaches you to avoid sin. Discipline comes in the front end. Punishment comes in the back end. Punishment is a form of suffering that reminds you not to disobey in the future. Discipline is a form of suffering that shapes your character unto obedience. When you spank your child, it is punishment. When you discipline your child, you are teaching them to exercise self-control before they do anything wrong. Now, we often use the terms punishment and discipline interchangeably, but there is an important biblical distinction which I'm attempting to point out. If punishment is grounding your teen for a week, discipline is giving your already obedient teenager chores to do in order to train them to be productive and hardworking. We want to try to avoid disobedience, set them on the right path. Now here's the problem. When you and me are in the midst of, of circumstantial hardship, it is sometimes difficult to know whether it is a consequence of sin or simply the training of discipline. Now, it might not be difficult to know if, if you are very aware that you are practicing sin. But if you're not and you're wondering, why is what is happening, what is happening to me? The primary way the Holy Spirit disciplines you and me is through circumstances. God arranges our circumstances. And sometimes it feels like God has rejected you. Sometimes you feel abandoned. And in those moments, when the promise is not coming to pass, you must seek the Lord as to the cause. And here's a good prayer to pray. Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way within me. And the Holy Spirit will bring to mind sin if there's something that you need to confess. You can trust the Holy Spirit to do that. But if there's nothing after you sincerely ask the Lord to search you, then you're probably experiencing discipline. And that's a good thing. Hebrews 12, 9. We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? That is God. So I suggest that the abandonment that the nation feels in Psalm 60, as expressed by David, is discipline, not punishment. As the Edomites push up from the north, and the Arameans uh, trouble Israel from, from the north, I'm sorry, Edomites from the south, Arameans from the north, there's this feeling of rejection and abandonment. And, and, and this, this is typical when it looks like God is not making good on his promise. It seems as if God is angry because he is allowing the difficult circumstances you find yourself within. 
Verse 2 reads, you have made the land quake, you have split it open. The earthquake imagery here is, is interesting. Interesting imagery to employ because, again, listen to Hebrews. This time, chapter 12, verse 27. It reads, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, the Lord allows and arranges for circumstances that shake us. Amen? And he does so that we may learn to trust him in the middle of feeling abandoned, rejected, or confused. Often in the shaking, during the earthquakes of life, those things which can be shaken, they crumble around you. And those are the things that have no eternal significance in your life. The Lord's getting rid of them. When the enemy's at the gate, whispering lies, intimidating you into fear, when anxiety is overriding you in the middle of the day, when things aren't working out like they're supposed to in your job, in your family, with your hopes, with your dreams, it is a major shaking that's taking place. Nothing is stable. Nothing can be depended upon except God. He's not abandoned you nor rejected you. If you are in Christ, God will no more reject you than he will reject Jesus. You're not abandoned, even though you may feel abandoned. What is actually occurring is that God is removing those things that can be shaken so that the thing that cannot be shaken remains. And that is his word. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The word of the Lord endures forever. Heaven and earth may pass away, Jesus said, but my word will not pass away. Everything else can be shaken. It is only the promise of God is found in his word that will remain. And in the case of Psalm 60, the earthquake is occurring so that all that remains for the people of God is the promise of God. And this is counterintuitive, this this. Seems like it doesn't make sense because God gives a promise, but he withholds fulfilling that promise. He allows a shaking so that it seems that the promise will not be fulfilled. And by doing so, the Lord is moving you through discipline to trust him. He's moving you to persevere in faith. He is moving you to walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 3, Psalm 60, you have made your people experience hardship. You, God, have made us experience hardship. What's the purpose of hardship in the Christian life? Back to Hebrews 12, this time verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. Endurance is holding on when times get tough. If you run marathons, probably nobody who does that, or, or compete in these other physically demanding competitive competitions, you know about endurance. You've done things in your life that, that called for you to endure. And what that word describes is, is, is what you do when your body screams for you to stop, to sit down, to cease inflicting pain upon it. Still you continue. Why? Why do you endure? Because of the satisfaction of completing the task. 
the satisfaction of, of pushing through unto completion. So why endure spiritually? Because of the satisfaction of growing in holiness. God's goal for you. Endurance will have its perfect result. According to James chapter 1, verse 4, you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that is the purpose of discipline. Holiness. Wholeness in character before God. In other words, the endurance that you undergo in God's school of discipline conforms you into greater likeness to the Lord Jesus. That's another way to look at it. While you endure, patiently waiting on the fulfillment of God's promise, what does that look like? Well, let's look at verses 7 and 8 to consider those answers. 7 and 8, we see the affirmation. We went from the promise to the discipline to the affirmation. In these verses, verses 7 and 8, God is reiterating His promise of verse 6 to portion out all of the land that He promised to Abraham. So implied in that, is the promise to preserve the land that's already been obtained if Israel will continue to trust the Lord. And so the Lord further encourages His people. Verse 7, Gilead is mine. And the reason I put this map up this morning is because if we have no visual context, these are just names, but you can look over here. The region of Gilead lies east, east of the Jordan within the territory of Gad. Manasseh is mine. Manasseh to the east, East Manasseh, was the major tribe that the whole uh, Transjordan area of Israel, East Manasseh, was the major tribe of that whole area. And together, Manasseh and Gilead represent that region in which Sukkot, if you remember that word, is a part. Ephraim and Judah together represent the whole land west of the Jordan. So Ephraim and Judah, they became the foremost clans or tribes. Ephraim eventually representing the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah representing the southern kingdom of Israel. So why is this list of names important? It's in the Bible, it must be important. Why is it important? Because this list represents all of the land that makes up the heritage of Israel. God has not forgotten his promise. He says, they are mine. They are mine. God's not forgotten his promise in your life either. And he will find ways to remind you of that. And one of those ways is this text this morning. Verse 7, Ephraim is also the helmet of my head. Helmets are defensive. They protect your head. Then it says Judah is my scepter. Scepters are held by kings. They represent the king's authority. Not just anyone was allowed to carry around the royal scepter like it was some common walking stick. Ephraim was a strong tribe in battle. And Judah, of course, was the tribe that would produce the eternal king, the one that, that came as part of the Davidic line, that is the Lord Jesus. So in these two statements, Ephraim is the helmet of my head and Judah is my scepter, in these two statements, we are reminded of defense, helmet, and authority, scepter. So how do you know that God will fulfill his promise? How do you know that? 
Well, because he's the defender of his own word. It's not your job to bring God's word to pass. It's his job. It's your job to trust. As verse 12 confirms, through God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our adversaries. The army was still fighting, but it was through him that they would tread down their adversaries. So how do you know that God's going to fulfill his promise? Because he has the authority. Judah is my scepter. He has the authority to bring his word to pass. So even if the circumstances of the present do not appear as if God is anywhere to be found, God himself is your defender and he is your ruler. And he assumes responsibility to bring his word to pass in your life. And he is able to do so. And your responsibility is to stay the course, stay in the battle, to endure. Because here's the further assurance found in verse 8. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I will throw my shoe. Shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. What in the world? Three nations that all lie outside of the borders of Israel. And they all threatened Israel at one time or the other. Threatened the land promised by God. So with these strange pictures, we once again see what? We see the Lord's authority. We saw the Lord had authority over his own people. And now we see the Lord has authority over the nations outside of the promised land. Moab is a servant who will come and wash the feet of Israel, his master. That's what that means. Israel is to Edom, as is the master returning home and, and flinging his sandals to his servant to clean and to put away. Another picture of subjugation. And the Philistines are called to shout in homage to the Lord. So God not only has authority over his people and their circumstances, he has authority over all people and all circumstances. Do you believe that? You are to submit to God's authority. The things that are coming against you, the things that are seemingly blocking your blessing, are the fulfillment of God's promise. All are firmly under the control of God. And this is why, whether you're experiencing victory or experiencing defeat, that is, feeling defeated, deliverance by man is in vain, as verse 11 says. So if you look to man, that is to others or to your own strength, in an attempt to bring God's purposes to pass, you will suffer defeat. The whole reason for the invasion from the south is so that you will cry out to God in your distress, so that you will endure through the uncertainty, so that God will prove himself in control and able to deliver but he will only prove that in your life if you allow him to. Oh, give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. So this begs the question of verse 9. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? The answer, of course, is God. But the problem, at the moment at least, is that God is nowhere to be found. And that's why verse 10 poses this question. Have you yourself not rejected us, and will you not go forth with our armies, O God? He certainly will. He's not abandoned you. 
no matter how difficult or painful your present circumstances may be. How do I know that? I know that for the same reason that you know. I know that because God has already gone ahead of you. And he did that at the cross. God will not reject you because he rejected his only begotten son. God will not abandon you because he abandoned Jesus Christ. When Jesus became sin on your behalf, when the judgment of God fell upon him so that he suffered and died a bloody and agonizing death, the father abandoned the son. That is why Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Answer, the father abandoned the son so that he never has to abandon you. Your sin was judged at the cross when Jesus Christ was punished for it. Jesus Christ was judged as a sinner, and the wages of sin is death. That is rejection by God. Jesus was rejected so that you don't have to be. Jesus rose from the dead to the full and free acceptance of his Father, having done his will. And that means you have a choice. You can believe that Jesus was rejected unto death for your sins, punished on your behalf, and that he rose so that you may be fully and freely accepted by God, cleansed from all unrighteousness. And if you were in that place because of faith that you have placed in Jesus alone, you are guaranteed that in one way or another, every promise of God will come to pass either in this life or the next. 2 Corinthians 1.20 You're guaranteed that every promise will come to pass because 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, As many as are the promises of God in Him, in Jesus, they are yes. As many as they are, they are all yes in Jesus. On the other hand, you can trust in yourself. You can believe that that you can make your own way. You can ignore the fact that God will judge sin. And you can refuse to acknowledge that by rejecting the love of God as demonstrated at the cross, you will ultimately be abandoned unto eternal separation from your Creator. That's the other option. And if you're still in that place, then the feeling of abandonment and rejection is not merely a feeling, it's reality. We all wrestle with feelings of rejection. We all crave approval. We all need affirmation. And these desires for affirmation and approval are built in. God placed them there. But he placed them there so that your ultimate satisfaction would be found in his approval and affirmation. You see, the unbeliever, the non-Christian, is in a state of condemnation. The spiritual reality is that the man or woman who is not in Christ is spiritually dead before God. From God's standpoint, the decree is, Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Since spiritual abandonment is a very real state, people seek elsewhere for approval from a spouse, from a peer group, from social media likes, 
from anything that will make them feel good about themselves because deep within their sin has made them guilty and rightly so and has made them feel bad about themselves. Guilt is not a bad thing when you are guilty. Until you are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, your feelings of rejection will remain. And they should drive you to be reconciled with your Creator who has made a way for you to come home to Him. And that is Jesus Christ. But what of the Christian? Many, hopefully all of you, have trusted Jesus. And yet maybe you still crave approval or affirmation from man. And I'm not saying that approval and affirmation are unhealthy. What I'm saying is that they cannot be driving forces in your life or you will live for man and not for God. The truth is, if you were in Christ, if you were sitting here this morning and you were in Christ, you are as accepted, affirmed, and approved by God as Jesus Christ. You are in Christ, and all that is true about him is true about you. Therefore, you no longer have to fear rejection. The ultimate rejection is abandonment to hell, eternal separation from God, but that is not the fate of the Christian. If you know that the Father affirms, approves, accepts, and receives you, whether you were ever affirmed and approved by man is secondary. Man's approval is not the driving force in your life. You live out of God's approval. You don't live for God's approval. Make a distinction. You don't live for God's approval. God already approves. He approved of Jesus and you're in Christ. You live out of God's approval. Let me conclude, conclude with verse 4. You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Here's the picture. God himself raising the flag, raising the standard in the middle of the battle. It's this rallying point. He, is, he has not abandoned you. He's not forgotten you. The flag is the reminder that he will fulfill his promise in the middle of the battle where it seems like all is lost. There's the reminder. Do not stand on the ground of your circumstances. Do not stand on the force of your feelings. Stand on the promise of God, whatever that is for you in this season. I will exalt, I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkot. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you this morning that you are not only a promise maker, but you, you are a promise keeper. And every promise of yours in Christ Jesus is yes. That means that you will stop at nothing to ensure that they are brought to pass in our lives. So, Father, help us to trust you. Help us to stand firm in the midst of 
of the battle when it seems, when it feels like we've been rejected, knowing that we have not. And knowing that it is you who will tread down our adversaries. Help us be faithful. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.